Well, I invite you to open up uh, to our scripture passage today. We're looking at Exodus 12, 14 to 51. So Exodus 12, 14 to 51. It's a longer passage, uh, so stick with me through it. And uh, yeah, let's jump right in. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day. Do not work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses. And anyone, whether the foreigner or native-born, who eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select animals for your families to slaughter and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord your God will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does the ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was a loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up! Leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go! Worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and go! And also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country. For otherwise, they said, We will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed to the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot besides the women and children. Many other people went up with them, and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough the Israelites had brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare the food for themselves. 
Now the length of the time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. On this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, these are the regulations for the Passover meal. No foreigner may eat it. Any slave you have bought may eat it after you have circumcised him. But a temporary resident or hired worker may not eat it. It must be eaten inside the house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. A foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may, ta may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat it. The same law applies to both the native-born and to the foreigner residing among you. All, and all the Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, we ask that you would speak to us as we look at this passage that has so much going on. It makes us uncomfortable in certain ways. But we pray that your spirit would speak to us today and that you would do that work that we just sung about, a work of new creation in us through the power of your word. Do what we cannot do on our own, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen. One of uh, my family's favorite movies when we were growing up was uh, The Great Escape. Maybe some of you have seen it. Uh, it was produced in the 60s. Uh, starring Steve McQueen and some others, and it tells the real-life story of this group of British uh, POWs who escape from a German prison camp midway through World War II. And so they develop this elaborate plan to dig three tunnels, so they have backup ones in case one is found, and hopefully get 250 people to escape out into freedom. And so every detail is planned. Uh, from scrounging up items in order to sew civilian-looking clothes for once they're on the outside and make fake IDs, uh, to strategically planned choir practices for the prison choir where they would belt out tunes as loud as they could to mask the digging going on underneath the surface. And they have a number of setbacks, as you can expect, but eventually they get one tunnel done. And as they break through the surface, though they realize the tunnel was about 200, or sorry, 20 feet too short, outside of the prison fence, but not in the woods like they planned. And they popped up right in a clearing where they could still run for it, but the guards would see them. And things just kind of went downhill from there. 76 POWs get out and then dispersed into smaller groups to kind of dilute the search efforts. Uh, and they hope that that will increase the chance of some of them making it to safety. But in the hours and days after the prison break, things don't go well. Two of the POWs find an airplane. They basically hijack it and fly it over the Swiss Alps, thinking they're going to make it into Switzerland. It seems like a surefire way to get out. But as the airplane is cresting those Alps, it has engine trouble and crashes, killing both of them. And the rest don't fare all that much better. One by one, these POWs are captured. First five, and then 10 of them, and then 50, all the way up to 71 of them are captured. Some of them are sent back to a prison camp. But word of this great escape made it all the way up to Hitler, who wasn't happy, and someone needed to pay. And so they take 48 of those prisoners, take them out into a field, and shoot them in the back. 
76 escaped, only three made it out alive. Most were dead. Most few prisoners that made it, and they're back in the prison camp, they wrestled. Was it worth it? Which is better? To be seeking freedom but then be killed? Or to be alive but stuck in prison? We're working our way through the book of Exodus. Uh, in this first section, we're looking at this theme of redemption. In today's passage, we see something of a great escape. But instead of the, the blood and sweat of digging a tunnel to get out of Egypt, God tells his people, you guys hold the party, I'll do the hard work. I'll let you do this great escape where you will not have to make a run for it, but they will actually open the door for you and you will walk out with your held, heads held high, carrying the riches of Egypt. You see, true redemption, true freedom, is always God's work. And that's what I want you to remember this morning. Redemption is God's gift. Redemption is God's gift. And we'll look at it just under two points. First, that work of redemption, and then second, the work of judgment. So the work of redemption. We've been looking at all the plagues, and every one of these plagues really serves God's greater purpose of redeeming his people out of Egypt. But this plague is kind of the climax of it all. This is, we could say, the knockout blow. The tunnel is finished, and they are just 12 inches from the surface. They just got to break through, and then they'll be free and make a run for it. Except, like I said, this prison break looks nothing like a great escape. Instead, God is telling them, here's how you're going to make your run for it. Hold the festival. Prepare bread. Slaughter the lamb. Now, there are some practical instructions here, right? Like God says, make dough without yeast, because if you just think about it, that's a lot easier to travel with than dough that is constantly rising. Just kind of like when you go backpacking. Right? You, you can't take many of the typical foods you would take with you, even if you go camping, right? Uh, because you're, you have to carry it all. You can't keep stuff cold. And so it really narrows your options for where to make good backpacking meals. And so freeze-dried meals are a popular option, and they taste pretty good, at least when you're backpacking. <laughs> I've discovered everything tastes good when you're backpacking, and it usually doesn't taste good when you're at home, right? But it's good enough for backpacking. And yeastless dough was kind of like the original freeze-dried meal. It was great for long treks through the wilderness. And though, as we look at all these instructions, so that one makes sense, but what about the rest of these instructions? Do they look like the plan for a prison break? Have a barbecue. Stay inside. I mean, it looks way more like a fun family Saturday evening than getting ready to make your great escape, which shows us this crucial thing. Redemption is God's work. Israel's job is to have a festival, to celebrate God's work. Now, Israel has to do a few things, which Moses outlines at the beginning of chapter 12 and then into our passage. Right? They're to find a year-old sheep or goat, one without blemish. They're to slaughter that animal, drain the blood into a basin, and then with hyssop, which is probably a form of oregano, use that to paint some of the blood on the doorposts of their home. And then stay inside. And additionally, notice, like these aren't particularly moral acts. right? Like These aren't them going and doing kind of good things that we tend to think will get, our notice, will get God's notice. Oh, I'm going to go serve the poor. I'm going to go give this thing away. right? These are very simple acts, not necessarily ones that we would say on their own merit are good or bad. We often think God saves those who are trying their best, those who are living a moral life. Those are the ones who will be redeemed. But that's not what we see here. God gives instructions for redemption that are independent of, about how good a person that, is, that person is or isn't. 
Right? The, the person that is living this upright moral life is redeemed out of Egypt in the very same way from maybe his neighbor who keeps screwing up and doing all kinds of bad things. Both people walk out with their heads held high, carrying the plunder of Egypt. So whether you were a, a scoundrel or a goody-two-shoe, both people walk out of Egypt like kings and queens. See, so what saved them if it wasn't these, their good deeds? It was the simple act of faith. It was painting your doorpost with that blood. It was baking the food without yeast. It was staying inside. Things that anybody could do. Whether you were a hero or a zero, an up-and-comer or a nobody, you could take those little steps of faith and that would save you. We see that through the rest of the passage where, where we see that the division between those God saves and those he doesn't isn't as simple as just the Israelites and everybody else, right? It is actually the line that divides them are those who put their faith in God by doing these simple acts that anyone can do. And it's the same with us today. What saves us is simple faith in Jesus. We talked last week about how the Passover foreshadows the death of Christ, the true Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world and whose blood was painted on the posts of the cross. Looking at Jesus is enough. It is more powerful than all your sin and shame. It makes you more worthy than all of the good things that you're trying to do. Even if you've really screwed things up in your life, God gives more weight to that blood than all the list of your failures. And that act of the faithfulness of the father or mother, right, who follows these instructions of God, saves that entire household. Everybody in that home gets to walk out together. They all get the blessings of redemption. This is part of the reason why in our Presbyterian tradition and many other Christian traditions, we baptize households. You've seen it here where the father or mother or both come to faith and we baptize that entire household because there are real benefits of grace for everybody in that home. When a father or mother believes, it brings down and trickles down grace to everyone there. And so God uses these simple means to bring about his redemption. This small act of faith that even the greatest screw-up can still do, and he uses that to redeem his people. And today it's no different. So interspersed, the, the passage is sometimes confusing because interspersed between the, the instructions for leave, leaving Egypt, them actually doing it, are also instructions for how to commemorate this great escape for every year that follows in what is called the Passover, which takes place on the 14th day of the month and then the Festival of Unleavened Bread, which follows immediately after. And today also, we don't celebrate these same acts as Christ, we say, has fulfilled them and given us new ones, but we also are no less focused on these simple means of grace that commemorate and even grow our faith. So we sometimes call them the means of grace. The Westminster Shorter Catechism in question 88 asks, what are the outward and ordinary means by which Christ imparts to us the benefits of redemption? 
That is actually what we see here in Exodus, right? What are the ways in which Christ redeems his people? Well, it is by them painting the doorpost, by them sacrificing the lamb. And the answer then is these benefits are given by his ordinances, especially the word, the sacraments, and prayer. All of these are made effectual to his chosen ones for salvation. See, God uses these simple, ordinary things, attaches his grace to them, and through these simple acts, we grow in Christ week by week. They are the ways in which we commemorate, remember God's redemption. And so that means if you're a Christian, you need to give yourself to these ordinary means. These things might not look extraordinary from the outside. In fact, they can be very mundane at points. You wonder, what in the world, what, what good is this that I keep just showing up week after week? But God says, my grace, my life is joined to these simple things. And if you give yourself to them, you will grow. You'll be redeemed. You'll mature. That's the beauty of the means of grace, is that they're accessible to everyone. They're not just for those who finish the race first. They're not just those who've had a great life. They are available for saint and sinner for the taking. It's why gathering for worship each week is so crucial. We believe in that a simple service like this, God shows up. And we've seen it. And how many people have come to faith just by showing up here. But we live in kind of a consumerist culture, right? You guys know that. And, and it even affects the culture of the church so that our worship becomes less about these means of grace and more about what will sell or what is appealing or what is exciting. And so maybe we do things, you feel this temptation to do things to make worship more thrilling, but you're in danger of stepping outside of those simple means that God has promised to work through. Right? So you'll gain the thrill of a show, but you'll lose the power of God. At JVC, we have what we call our landmarks. Are you worshiping, praying, discipling, sharing? These things are all tied intentionally to the means of grace, that a, a, a healthy church member is doing these things. Think of it. Landmarks are those things which help you orient your life and, and know which way to go on a long journey. It's the same with our landmarks here. I would encourage every one of you to take some time this week and, and use them as like a set of diagnostic questions. Am I gathering with God's people to worship? Am I praying, talking with God? Am I helping someone else follow Jesus more, discipleship? Am I sharing the resources that God has given me, the time, the talents, the money, to bless the people here at JVC and throughout God's church? Don't underestimate how powerful those simple acts of faithfulness are. Because in those simple acts, God shows up and does way more than you can imagine. This brings us to our second point, the work of judgment. This final plague is tough. I mean, it's tragic. You feel the weight of the, the sorrow. Verse 30, there was a loud wailing in Egypt, for there was no house without someone dead. Now, it's helpful to remember the context. When it talks about the Egyptians wailing, it should probably remind us of the wailing of the Israelites that we read about chapters earlier when they watched their baby boys ripped from their hands and thrown into the Nile. 
that in one sense, God is giving the Egyptians a taste of their own medicine, experiencing the pain that they inflicted on these people for so many years. But it's not just that, it's more. Several times in the passage, it, it, it talks about how this plague affects everyone in Egypt. Verse 29 tells us, from Pharaoh to the prisoner. Like, what role did the prisoner have in all this? It doesn't seem fair to, for him to lose his child. And then it includes all the firstborn of the livestock. Like, how are the cows guilty uh, of this? Why is there so much killing? Now, one of the things that we need to see is back in 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 12, it reads, On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. One of the themes we've seen through Exodus is that Exodus is a book that kind of pulls back the curtain. It shows what is happening behind the scenes, what is taking place in our world, the forces that are involved in this great cosmic battle between good and evil. And as we've said, so much of Exodus is about worship. Who will Israel worship? Who will they serve? Pharaoh, this god of Egypt, or Yahweh, the god of the world? And the idea of the firstborn, or the first of anything, it's something that shows up a lot in the Old Testament. That in the ancient world, the first fruits or the firstborn was always considered, this is God's share of what we get. It was your sign of thanksgiving for God's blessing, right? God is the one who gives life. We had a fruitful season of crops. We have our first child. This child, the first fruits of our crops, these things belong to God. We're kind of a little bit removed from this idea, so it sounds kind of odd to us, but I think there's actually maybe something similar going on in many restaurants, right? When they make their first sale, they don't take that $20 bill and just you know, put it in the bank, but what do they often do? They frame it and put it up on their wall, an offering of their first fruits, of giving thanks that their business is now making money. And the Old Testament picks up a lot on this idea of the firstborn. So we're going to look at more next week, so I don't want to spoil everything. But, but the idea is that the first of your crops, the firstborn of your cattle and animals, the firstborn in your family, these things belonged to God because he was the giver of life. And, and you can look at Exodus as really this battle of who has a right to the firstborn. Is it who sustains life in Egypt? Who is Egypt's real God? Is it the self-proclaimed God named Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods? Or is it Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews? To put it uh, another way, this final plague isn't just a judgment, but a judgment against the Egyptian gods who are taking what God says is his. God is claiming all of Egypt as his own. He says, I have no boundaries. God is saying, I'm not just worthy of Israel's worship, I'm worthy of your worship, Egyptians, Pharaoh. And if you reject me, you reject the source of life and it will not end well for you. I am worthy of everything that you have, your children, your cattle. It is all mine. I gave it to you. And will you acknowledge that or not? The one, the only one who has the authority to take a life is the one who gives it. And that's not your God's. So God isn't, in the story of redemption, trying to dig a tunnel out of Egypt hoping that Pharaoh doesn't notice all of a sudden, you know, 500 or how many million probably people are, are now gone and they made it far away, enough far away so that Pharaoh can't reach them. God is showing through his redemption 
All of Egypt is mine. My people aren't going to make a quick escape out the back door. They're going to march like an army out the front door. But why does God care about this? Especially today, we have something of a battle of the gods here in Exodus. And, and today people cringe at the idea. Well, how can you say there's only one God? Or how can you say there's only one way? And, and so many people are convinced that religious disputes between whose God is the more powerful God is the, the cause for so much violence in the world. And this kind of feels like just another example of that, religious war. But that's not exactly what's happening here. So notice how the judgment in Egypt is so intertwined with the redemption. It's why in chapters 11, 12, and even part of 13, we keep switching back between the instructions for the Passover meal, Israel's redemption, and then the judgment of God on Egypt. The judgment is in service of the redemption. So that what is happening here is more like, say, an assault on a Nazi prison camp to free those on the inside than it is a playground fight over whose God is more powerful. Because from the beginning of creation, God has shown that his plan in making all things is to lead us into a perfect and forever world where there is no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All those things are gone forever. And whatever judgment God brings into Egypt is in the service of that goal, that he is trying to create a world where there are no more slaves, no more murder, no more rape, no more death, no more senseless killing. And how do you move from a world of death into that world of everlasting life? And everyone has some idea, right? I mean, for the, much of the 20th century, People thought, well, the way we're going to usher in a good future is through progress, right? Technology, greater medicine, education. This will usher in world peace and it'll fix all our problems. And yet it didn't take too long in the 21st century to quickly realize that hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. So much of the technology and economic growth that we thought would solve the problems of our world and usher in an age of peace, I think many of us are waking up to realizing they are actually making so many of those problems worse. It's not going to fix things. We're not going to fix the horrors of our world simply through better education or medicine. There is a deeper issue that the reason why God had to go in with his fist in Egypt is the same reason why it feels so often like we're never making progress when it comes to loving one another. And we know that. You're reminded of it every day when you wake up and whether in your job or just reading the news, you see the hate, the murder, the injustice, the rape, the abuse, and more that thrives right behind the walls of all of our middle-class communities. And this is nothing of the blood that soaks the ground on a daily basis in the rest of the world as so many innocent people are killed. And so what do you do? How do you fix the deep wounds of a world 
that never seems to be healing. And I think we're seeing right now more and more that even some of the very structures that our society has set up to help are failing, are, are so skewed that sometimes they even protect the guilty and hurt the innocent. And so in the last few years, we see more and more people taking justice into their own hands, right? whether by actually killing them or by canceling them or banning them or mocking them. And this is happening both on the left and the right in our country. And it's spiraling out of control, right? As each group says, you're the problem, you're the problem, this, that. So many folks are convinced if we could just get rid of them, if we could just get rid of all the liberals, if we could just get rid of all the conservatives. But don't you see, you get rid of all of them and within a short while, there will be a new them to hate. It never solves the problem. And as Schultz and Eatson so famously wrote, if it were only all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them, which is basically the solution that everybody is coming up with right now. But he says the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Until we see that every one of us stands guilty, that we are just as guilty as those people we love to hate and think that if we just get rid of them, things will be better, you will never make progress in healing the deepest wounds in our world and in your own soul. This, it's why the solution right now in our society to judgment gone wild isn't in getting rid of a God who judges, which is what so many people want to do. I mean, how is that working for us? It's no accident that as people refuse to believe in a God who judges, they feel all the more pressure to become more judgmental. And, and because we know this world is messed up, we know things aren't right. And it's the most depressing thing to see over and over those who harm others so often get away with it. But don't miss, going back to our passage, it is precisely because God judges that the Israelites don't have to here. Right? God doesn't tell them, hey, you guys go pick up your pickaxes and get to the fight. God does the work. They get to eat a peaceful meal in their home. And who is judged and who is freed? It's not so simple as we often want to think, oh, the good guys are, are freed and, and, and God judges these sinners. I like the New Living Translation for verse 38. A rabble of non-Israelites went with them along with great flocks and herds of livestock. See, it wasn't just God's special people and everyone else. Those that walked out were everyone in Egypt who through witnessing all of those last ten plagues and realized this God is worth it. This God is powerful. This God is the God I need to follow. That the outcasts of Egypt join the parade of the redeemed. God's judgment isn't here divided between, the, those, between those people who are good and those people who are bad. It's not divided between the people that he happens to just like and have a soft spot for and, and those people he doesn't like. 
It's divided between those people who show faith, paint the doorposts, eat the unleavened bread. You do that, you're saved. The ones who were saved weren't any better. They were the ones who realized the line of evil that we've seen in Egypt runs through my heart too. I need the blood of the Lamb. As Romans 3.23 says, For everyone is sinned, and all fall short of God's glorious standard. The only way that we walk out is through the Lamb who is slain in our place. And God looks at that Lamb's blood on the doorpost and sees the blood of our perfect Lamb, God's firstborn, dripping from the posts of that cross. And God says, you are redeemed because Jesus was your lamb. Jesus took your place. And then God is leading us, the parade of the redeemed, on this journey to that heavenly home that we long for. He is leading the redeemed out of Egypt, out of their prison. And Pharaoh here is holding open the door and saying, go for it bringing them one step closer to that world where there will be no more pain or sorrow or tears or death. But as you know, and as we're going to see here in a little bit, it doesn't work out that well. The problem even runs deeper than that. The Israelites screw it up fast. And it's why we need Jesus, the true Passover lamb, a better sacrifice, an infinite lamb, who redeems his people and leads them to their heavenly home. We needed a lamb that wouldn't just feed our bellies, but a lamb that would transform our hearts of stone into hearts that beat at the life of God. And now we, here we say it at JVC all the time, we are on a journey. We are part of the parade of the redeemed. And Paul picks up this idea in Ephesians 4 when he says, guess what, this is true of you, church. God has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. That is why the scriptures say, when he ascended to the heights, he, Christ, led a head of captives, and he led a crowd of captives, and he gave gifts to his people. Brothers and sisters, when you put your faith in Jesus, when you look at his bloodstained posts and say, that's the only way, you are counted among that great parade of freed captives and are carrying the wealth of kings as Jesus leads us on our journey to the new heavenly Jerusalem. And that's our home. And that is a place that is described in Isaiah 25. The Lord of heaven's armies will spread out a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. This is where we're headed. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. There he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would do this work that only you can do. Help us to see that the first step towards healing is in knowing that line of good and evil runs through us. Now we need you to do the work. We need you to save us. And help us to rejoice in that and to remember, no matter how hard things get, how much suffering there is, 
You are God who judges. You see everything. You see what happens in secret. And you will make it all right. And one day we'll gather with all your people at that great banquet and we will feast. And the cloud of gloom will never be seen again. Father, would that day come? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.